You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. To another episode of Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe, and today we're going to explore emotional intelligence. My guest is a gentleman named Daniel Tolson. Daniel, welcome to the show. Doug, good night. Thanks for having me here. I think it's interesting. Tell the folks uh, what part of the world you're calling from. Well, I, they call me an egg. So I'm uh, white on the outside, yellow on the inside, and I live in Taiwan. So they call me <laughs> Dun Dun, which is egg. <laughs> Really? Okay. <laughs> Not sure where that came from, but uh, all right. Uh, that's good. But when your family calls you that, you're allowed to repeat it. There you go. Can't get in trouble for that one. <laughs> that makes it, Yeah, that, that makes sense. So give us a little bit of your background. How did you get into the realm of expertise that you're uh, operating in right now? At age 11, I collapsed on the floor at home. And for many years, my mum was trying to figure out what was wrong with me. So they started to do some x-rays and some MRIs, and they discovered that I had a twisted spine and an unaligned neck. And that put the cranial plates in my skull out of alignment. And they were pushing down on the left and right hemisphere of the brain. And it built up with a lot of pressure. So I was living with a migraine headache, constant nosebleeds. I would run. My knees would collapse. Uh, I couldn't see properly. And I was also... Uh, impaired auditorily and I couldn't hear properly everything was just flat so for five years I was in remedial therapy and I just played the catch-up game at school until I dropped out and then for all the people who dropped out of school and couldn't get a job you had to find a job in sales so I got into sales and I realized that I could succeed in sales not because of intelligence but because of social intelligence my ability to get along with other people and at that age I really found social intelligence quite fascinating I was introduced to the work of Brian Tracy and started my life in personal development. And then I found a love for coaching. So all the way back at age 11 was when my journey started, when I just didn't fit in with everybody else. Fabulous. I mean, what a story. It's interesting you found sales as a solution for that, uh, that early part of your journey. Yeah. <laughs> I could overcompensate uh, with enthusiasm. So my mentor said to me, Daniel, if you want to succeed in sales, then you're going to have to be enthusiastic. And enthusiasm is going to beat experience 10 to 1. So if you're out knocking on the doors, you want to show people that you want to work hard. You're willing to get up early. You're willing to stay back up late. That'll beat experience 10 to 1. He said, because in this area, all the old dogs are still sleeping. They're sitting back. They got fat. And now they're not chasing. But if you've got the energy and you're willing to chase the work, you'll beat them. And it was within six months of getting that advice that I'd uh, raised to the top of my field and I was in the top 10 sales creators in the country. It wasn't because of intelligent, it wasn't because of IQ, it was just that I could get along with people and I knew that enthusiasm was transferable. And what I believe today is that emotions are more contagious than COVID. So when you take that enthusiasm into life and in business, people feed on it. I think that's so true, and it's easy to overlook, especially for those who take on the burden of running a company, you know, becoming an entrepreneur and building a business. 
Uh, on the one hand, I certainly know a lot of business owners that are incredibly enthusiastic. They're passionate about the idea that they're trying to develop and, and work on. But I also know a lot of business owners that are already on the brink of burning out because they're so overwhelmed with some of the day-to-day that they kind of lose that fire, they lose that energy, and they lose that spark. And uh, that that's clearly a, a challenge when you, you know, when you hear them out and see what they're doing. And, and so, um, well, let's fast forward a little bit. So how did you specifically land on this knowledge of, of what this popular thing we're talking about today, emotional intelligence, where did that part of the journey start? I got a phone call at four o'clock in the morning and it was from the duty controller at Emirates Airline. And they said, Daniel, there's been an accident on one of the aircrafts. Could you come down to the Landside Hospital? And I said, is this a duty call? They said, no, it's your fiance. She's been involved in an accident. So I got down to the Landside Hospital and there's my fiance in a cast from ankle to hip. And she's been in an accident on the aircraft where she's fractured her knee in five places. And for the following two and a half years, I had to nurse her back to health. Mm. And during that time, I was doing a lot of peer support and critical incident stress management. I was studying cognitive behavioral therapy, emotional intelligence. My wife was in and out of operations, and she just seemed to be stuck in the past. She couldn't move forward. Her body was healing after multiple operations, but her heart set and her mindset was still stuck in the past. And I remember going on a nine-day trip from Dubai to Australia, to New Zealand and coming back. And when I walked in the house, my wife was there and she had a knife in her hand and she was ready to take her own life because after two years of being stuck inside and nobody to care for the emotional uh, feelings and for the mindset, she'd gone crazy and she just wanted to end her life because of the physical and emotional pain. And I thought to myself, this is the true test. If these ideas really work, then it's going to be up to me as her husband to get her out of this emotional rut and get her better. And so that's where the root really started for me, was taking these ideas and seeing if they would actually work with somebody close to me. And uh, for me, it paid off. Wow. Golly, talk about uh, baptism by fire. (laughs) (laughs) Straight in the deep end. So you're studying this material and never had a real uh, chance to exercise it quite yet. And and you walk home, get home, and you're confronted with that kind of a situation. Mm. Well, I certainly certainly hope she's okay today. She's good today. She's, uh, I'd say she's my best client. (laughs) Keeps getting better. Right. Well, good. Glad to glad to hear that. So, how does your work typically uh, manifest itself? Clients call you, and what's the typical starting point? What are they talking about when they give you a ring? I think for a lot of coaches, this is where they get stuck. In our type of work, we look at a psychograph, and so it's not an age, it's not a geographic location, it's not a demographic. It's a certain time at people's life where they wake up in the morning and they feel stuck and they don't know what to do next. So they're problem aware, but they're not solution aware. So a lot of people try many things. They start reading self-help books. They start to go to online programs. They start to go to seminars and they get all these lovely ideas and they have all the knowledge. They know what to do, but they don't know how to implement it. Mm. 
And what a business person normally sees is a lot of unfulfilled potential. They say, with everything that I know and everything that I've done, I should be so much further ahead in life by now. I should have so much more success. I should have so much more financial security for my family. What's wrong? And they have this feeling of being stuck and not knowing what to do next. And it's normally at that stage they start looking for coaches. And I've done a lot of advertising, a lot of marketing over the years. And some of the best places I find people is on YouTube because they start to go to YouTube and they start to look for self-help. And then most of my clients are actually referred to me. So they say, hey, you've got to work with Daniel. I've had this problem before, fears, doubts, limiting beliefs, and we're able to solve them. So for me, predominantly when I started, it was through referrals. Today, it's through places like YouTube. <clears throat> That's amazing. And, um, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of data that tells us among the uh, horse race that is social media, and I say that, you know, every platform's trying to eke ahead and, and get a bigger draw. Um, current data tells us that YouTube is one of the emerging, you know, giants. And, and, and of course, for those who weren't paying attention, uh, you know, Google owns YouTube now. So this notion of a lot of the search algorithm and at top of the heap kind of opportunity is uh, very much present in the YouTube world. So um, that's interesting you, that you've found your connection there. Well, it's um, long form that they're looking for. <clears throat> they're, they're sick of the sound bite. They don't want the seven second sound bite. They want long form. And one thing I learned many years ago is that to succeed in business today, we're going to follow what's called a golden triangle of selling. So people want to build a relationship with us. They want us to teach them something. And once we do that, they'll actually reach out for a consultation. So in our field specifically as coaches, we need at least 35 touch points and people need to consume at least seven hours of your content before they're going to reach out to you. So a place like YouTube can get you that seven hours really quick. Instagram can give you a split second, but YouTube gives you that long form. And because once they consume your content, they look at you as teacher. And they say, you've taught me something. They've also been able to build a relationship because they get to see you off the platform, meaning that it's not an advertisement. It's not scripted out. They get to see the real you. And now they feel they have a relationship. Right. And then if the advice is good, they see you as a trusted advisor and they want to seek a consultation. Yeah. So if there's other people who are building businesses um, where you're consulting or coaching, you've got to get onto YouTube and you've got to give away your best content for free. I have, uh, I, I agree with you there. I uh, recently onboarded a new client in a long-term engagement and the way it worked, we had known each other for a, quite a while through other affiliations and experiences. And I had never approached them about hiring me as a coach, but one day I got a call and this client says, I happened to start subscribing to your podcast and I'm watching your videos on YouTube. And he said, I was doing yard work this weekend and I had the audio on and I listened to about six episodes. And he said, it was weird. You were just in my head. Everything we, you were talking about with your guests, it was just stuff that I've got such a 
problem with right now in, in my business and in my life and world. And he said, uh, you, you've, you've got to be my coach. It's just, there's no, <laughs> no discussion. I said, okay, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. And <clears throat> so we've been working together now about six months and, uh, it, it is interesting. you what you described in that dynamic there. And by his own admission, it took him a number of episodes to get through and make the connection and, agree that I might have something that could really help him. So, Well, I, I know in one of your earlier episodes, you had a guest on and you were talking about metaphors in sports and saying if you're into sports, you'll come up with a lot of sports analogies. I think the best way to understand it is that all activities that we engage in as humans are called uh, mirror neuron activities. And so Guys, when you're watching TV and you see funniest home videos and another guy gets kicked in the crutch, what do you feel? Oh, you feel the pain. For the ladies who see a newborn baby, they feel that motherly and maternal feeling. And when you listen to a podcast and you hear other people's problems, you start to self-diagnose and you go, that's my problem, that's my problem. And the audios ignite all the neural pathways. It ignites and lights up all of those fears, doubts and limiting beliefs that you have. And the fact that you're the host and you're talking about it, the person listening says, well, if you're talking about it and you've been able to recognize and diagnose something within me that I can't even diagnose, you must have the solution. So there's only one place to go. So it's a mirror neuron activity. It lights up the neural connections and they say, well, if you ask the question, you must know the answer. And that's how simple it is. But people try to really overcomplicate it. But it's so simple. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's no doubt there, there's a lot of content on YouTube and all those social platforms where it's it's nothing but a, a very distinct and direct sales effort. And I personally um, despise those. And as, as soon as I get a whiff that that's what's getting ready to happen, I'm usually, you know, scrolling on to the next one. It's like, nope, nope, not going to do this. So um and I've been challenged by colleagues who tell me I don't do enough sales in my shows. And well, we've we've got a commercial link in there. If somebody's really interested, they get a thirty second reminder of how to get a hold of me, and that's that's really it. I mean, there's no you know big uh, big pitch or big argument about what ought to happen. So um, l l let's get back to you. You've now mentioned it a couple of times. Let's let's talk about this beast called limiting beliefs. What's your take on where limiting beliefs come from? Psychologists call them the enemy within. The Wolf <clears throat> of Wall Street calls them the bullshit stories that you keep telling yourself why you can't have what you want. And where they really come from is in the first seven years of our life. So in the first seven years of our life, we have what's called an imprint period. And it begins in the mother's womb. And so as we're learning language, as we're learning about life, we're imprinted with thoughts, ideas, situations. And the root cause of limiting beliefs all exist in the first seven years of our life. And once we've made a limiting decision, it's then held in place by a limiting belief. So we will be aware of limiting beliefs. I can't sell. I'm not a natural born salesperson. I'm not a leader. I can't speak in public. These are all beliefs and beliefs are like talking about symptoms. These are the things that we see on the surface. But what we don't see is the root cause where we made a limiting decision. 
and it's always in the first seven years of our life. And this is why a lot of people fail at self uh, improvement and personal development. They go to a seminar, they jump up and down, and they bring the energy, woo! <laughs> and then they go back to work and they got the same problem because they dealt with the symptomology. They never dealt with the root cause. Often when I deal with clients, we it's, it's not hard to quickly hear the stories that, that they're telling themselves that make up that body of, of limiting beliefs. You know, um, I'm not fast enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't deserve this. So on and so on and so on. And the tape just keeps it playing. My wife and I... We update the analogy, but my wife and I talk about the videos playing in your head, you know, the the little movies you've got about these things. What do you think is a way that somebody can actually reprogram that so as not to have it remain as a limiting belief? The first thing you could do is you could use <clears throat> affirmations. And affirmations work on what's called the law of substitution. So a belief is a thought that you keep thinking. And as long as you say to yourself, I can't sell, you'll believe that. But once you start to change the inner dialogue and say, I can sell, then what happens is those thoughts influence 95% of your feelings. And your emotional state determines the actions that you take. So you can quickly substitute a negative thought with a positive thought because you can only hold one thought at a time in consciousness. Now, for some people, that could work really fast. But for other people, you could be saying affirmations for 10 or 20 years and you still won't be able to sell because there's so many other negative emotions that are connected to it. So that's the first option. The first thing you could try is affirmations. And for some people, they work really well. For other people, there's a technique and it's called timeline therapy. And timeline therapy is the fastest technique in the world to get to the root cause of these negative emotions and limiting beliefs. And using timeline therapy, it works with a psychological reframe. And as you reframe the mind and the root cause event, it then quickly changes the basis of your personality. Once your basis of personality change or your unconscious mind, then you don't need affirmations. Because the mind is reset, your operating system has been upgraded, and now you believe at a cellular level that you can sell. And then because of all the other laws like the law of belief and the law of attraction, then you'll attract new experiences into your life. So there's two options you can take. Mm -hmm. And how does someone start that, that journey to get that, that kind of uh, reprogramming or resetting done? Well, I think for a lot of people, they get to a stage where maybe they're in their 40s and their 50s and they look around and they see other people becoming more successful. They're seeing people achieve their goals. They get financial security faster. And out of fear of missing out, they make a decision. They say, I don't want to waste any more time. So you could have a fear of missing out and that could trigger it. Or you could increase your desire for your goals. And I think what the problem is on the planet today, Doug, is things are so easy to get. Money is so easy to get. I remember when I, when I grew up, if I wanted a transformer, I'd have to put it on lay-by and I'd go to the toy shop every week and I'd put 50 cents down, I'd put 50 cents down. And there was so much desire because I had to pay for that thing in advance. But today, you don't pay for it in advance. You pay for it for the rest of your life. 
<laughs> so if you've got that level of desire and you want it bad enough, then you'll say, I'll do whatever it takes. And it's not until you say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. If you can't do that, transformation will never take place. It really does. It, I'm reminded of the, you know, the popular 12-step programs. One of the, you know, the first critical step in all of the programs that are out there is you have to admit there's a problem. And if, you, if you've suffered those limiting beliefs, those tapes and stories that keep playing in your head, and you're not willing to say, that's a problem, <laughs> that's, that's holding me back, that, that's an issue, then the healing is unlikely to begin. But is the day you, you, know, you really stand up and say, I don't like thinking this way anymore, I, I want to do something different. A lady said to me, she said, Daniel, the reason why I came to your program is because I was looking for more ways and better ways to blame other people for not having what I want. <laughs> she was so honest with me. Now, she doubled her income after the program, which was great for her. And there's four things that we've got to get past. There's four reasons why negative emotions exist. And negative emotions are a part of limiting beliefs. The first thing is blame. We start to blame other people for what we don't have. We blame our parents, we blame our spouse, we blame our boss. And for as long as we're blaming people, we can't move forward and we'll have negative emotions. The second thing is justification. I deserve to be angry. And all of a sudden we justify our limitations. And whilst we're justifying, we'll still have the limitation. We also identify with it. We say, well, I'm not a natural born speaker. I'm not a natural born salesperson. And we put the label on ourselves, and then we tell everybody else and we enroll people into our problems. So we've got blame, justification, rationalization and identification. So then we rationalize all these things and we make a sociably unexcusable <laughs> belief rational in our mind. And we feel that it's natural or it's being given to us. And then we tell everybody about it and it gets bigger and bigger. So as long as we're blaming, justifying, rationalizing, and identifying with it, we can't move <clears> on from it. I've told this story before on the show, and I've actually written about it in one of my books. When uh, the economic crash of 2008 happened, I got busy and with some friends and partners started a nonprofit for job seekers, people that for the first time in their lives had been given pink slips and they had... They had never ever had to go look for a job. They landed the first one early on and then the opportunity just kept coming. So their careers just kept going. And so 10, 15, 20 years into a career path, all of a sudden because of this economic downturn and crash, they lost their jobs. Well, there was a very interesting dynamic that emerged and the organization I had over about a three and a half, four year period, we coached over 4,500 people. So I have a pretty good sampling in my database to, to make the statement I'm getting ready to make. I, about six months into the program, I wanted to start assessing data because it's part of it's the old banker in me. I want to look at the numbers and I started tracking success rates in the program. And I was not happy when I determined that we had a 66% success rate right on the nose. And I thought, two-thirds are making it and one-third's not. That doesn't sound like a good program, you know. What do I need to do to change this program? And I got my board together and we talked about it. And 
we didn't really come up with an answer, but I went home and I stewed on it and I woke up the next morning and I went, boom, aha, let me look at that list again. And I started going through the names on that third that were not successful and it clicked with me. Those were the ones that had the blame, the justification, all those things you just mentioned. And it was always somebody else's fault that they had lost their job, or it was that old bad boss that never, you know, took them in and always had it out for them. And when he got his chance, he, he canned them, you know, he, he let them go. And, and then on top of that, they would look at our material that we were trying to present, and we were trying to be very contemporary, very up-to-date on methods and uh, approaches and all the technology with job search, et cetera. We were teaching all this stuff in our program, but they would come to these workshops and they'd go, oh, I'm not going to do that. I, 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 don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe what you're telling me. And I'm sitting here, I've got a panel of recruiters that say, hey, here's top 10 things that work in, in hiring right now today. Here's what you need to do. And then these guys are sitting there going, no, no, it, it's not that way, you know. So my point is, and then I got to looking at the other two thirds and sure enough, the top third were the ones that, man, they jumped in, they had a good attitude. They looked at our material and said, boom, what do I do next? All right, I got that one. What, what's next? What's next? What's next? Boom, boom, boom. And they had worked the program. The middle third took a little longer to embrace it, but they still never had a pushback attitude. It was like, yeah, okay, I got to work a little harder at this. I got to, I got to soak this in. I got to think about it. But okay, I'm going to do it. But it was that bottom third that they always, you know, it's just the way I am, and nobody's going to change me, and I'm, I'm not going to do this, and blah blah blah, you know. How, how's and, that working out for them? Exactly. That was the exact <laughs> phrase I, I used when every time somebody would tell me that, I'd say, "How's that working out for you right now?" <laughs> And I was not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to say it at all. There were people that I uh, uninvited to participate in our program. It's like, guy, you know, you've been here three months. We've heard you nothing, do nothing but heckle our speakers and, and bother our people. Uh, you obviously are not getting anything out of our program. I think you need to move on. When I crunch my data, Doug, one thing comes up with the people who don't succeed is that they have a fear of losing their stability. They've already lost their stability, but they're right. trying not to change to avoid any more loss of stability. So they dig their heels in like an old mule and they stubbornly refuse to change. And how they see it is that they're patient and they believe time is going to fix their problem. And as they believe time's going to fix their problem, they can't see that their time's running out. Yeah. That's the first thing. The second thing is they think that learning is an action. Learning is an activity. And they've been lied to and they believe that the more you learn, the more you earn. No, the more action you take, the more money you make. So they get caught up in the learning cycle and they're ticking the boxes. I've got the certification. I've done all the learning. I'm in the program. There's got to be something wrong with the learning. And then when you listen to their psychology, they say, well, if it's not 110% perfect, I'm not going to begin. So they analyze the data. Then they get paralyzed and they never take action because of a fear of making a mistake. So that fear of losing your stability, the fear of making a mistake traps them in the comfort zone. 
and then they start to use their intelligence against themselves. They can come up with all the reasons and the people to blame, to justify, to rationalize and identify. And they're so intelligent, they convince themselves of their own bullshit. Right. And so right. nobody's holding them back. They're just doing it with their own intelligence. And that's the problem with having a high IQ is you become so smart that you can justify everything. Where if you've got a low IQ and a high EQ, you have limited cognitive function and you go, okay, I learned that, I'm going to apply it. And then those emotionally intelligent people, they understand that pain is part of the process and they accept it and they don't overthink it. They just get it done. I like your your phrase there. The more you learn, the more you earn, but that's not true. And what was the other half of it? The more action you take, the more money you make. <laughs> every like every that. rich person I know has just taken, they've got a bias for action. They haven't even finished learning and they've applied what they've learned so far. And they say 80% perfect. They go to market, 80% perfect. Yeah. You tell that to yeah. somebody who analyzes data, 80% perfect. What the hell is that, Daniel? <laughs> Get it done and you'll be fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's amazing how some large companies have evolved their culture to the point that that strive per for perfection really hinders their ability to respond to the market. I was dealing with a very large, famous global brand a few years ago who was trying to change a hundred year culture. And one aspect of their culture, they were heavy engineering oriented. So the natural <laughs> mindset was solve the whole problem, you know, tick all the boxes perfect. and an opportunity would emerge in the market and they would mobilize the team. Let's analyze this. Let's decide what we're going to do. Well, they could get up to about the 70 or 80% completion in no time. I mean, like days, just two or three days, boom, 70 or 80% of the answer was in front of them. And in most cases, it was very compelling go or no go. Pretty obvious, pretty easy to make that call. But then they would spend months milking out the other 20% of what was missing. And guess what? The market went away. The opportunity had was gone. And, and yet they had invested all this manpower and heavy thinking on a decision that uh, at the end of the day meant nothing. It's the Pareto principle, the 80-20 principle. <laughs> yeah. Get it 80% done and figure the 20% out as you go. Right. And, and that's the way that I learned in real estate was nothing's ever going to be perfect. You're going to put the property on the market today and everything's going to change tomorrow. So just get it on the market and figure out the rest as you go. But for the people who suffer from perfectionism, they think that one little mistake, their whole world is going to come crashing down. And what they've got to learn in terms of emotional maturity is to accept feedback. And one of the beliefs that we have in NLP is that there's no failure, there's only feedback. And it's the feedback that helps you grow. So what they hate is they hate hearing feedback, but you can't grow without feedback. So they try to get everything perfect and they push the feedback away. And as long as they keep pushing it away from themselves, they can't bring in the valuable learnings and they get stuck. And for them to be emotionally mature is they have to be able to receive feedback and not see it as criticism. And if they can do that, they can move forward really fast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, as you say that, I'm reminded of another popular term in business now is this idea of creating psychological safety in the workplace. 
And it was popularized by the study that Google did called Project Aristotle and released in, I think it was 2018 that came out. And they were talking about why do some teams perform at higher levels than other teams? And the number one runaway winner of the answer was psychological safety being I'm, you know, I call this show leadership powered by common sense. The common sense definition of psychological safety is trust. Mm. You know, if you build an atmosphere of trust where it's not only about the people trusting the boss or the boss trusting the people, but it's everybody trusting each other. And you build that atmosphere of trust, then yes, you can speak your mind, you can offer an opinion, and you know you're not going to be cut down or belittled or made fun of for expressing something. So it's uh, it's it's an interesting dynamic, but I argue that it it still takes a high level of emotional intelligence to create and drive that atmosphere of trust because a very human nature is you know, the first time you do something negative, I'm going to diminish or, or eliminate my trust of you. Smack on the bottom. Smack. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And as a leader, you know, I, I always encourage my clients, you, you have to work hard to turn that tape off. You know, you need to inherently and automatically trust your people. And if, if you're going to tell me absent any other action, you don't trust your people, then shame on you. You made a bad hiring decision. <laughs> well, they say all incompetent people were in, hired by incompetent managers. <laughs> right, right. When I, when I was with Emirates Airline, I was co-leading a team of 17,500 cabin crew. And every flight, I'd be given 17 new crew who I didn't know. I'd be given 400 customers and half a billion dollar aircraft. And I knew that I had to create what's called an unconditional positive regard. And that's the state in psychology where people can bring you any information without being punished. Because if there was a fire on the aircraft, I want to know about it. And I'll give you an example. One of my crew, she was working with an incompetent leader. And they were down in economy. And halfway across the Indian Ocean to the point of no return, you'd go back to Australia two and a half hours or you land in the subcontinent in two and a half hours time. I got a phone call to say, Daniel, there's a customer sleeping on the floor. So I very casually walked down to the economy class, which is a long way on these big aircrafts. And this person wasn't sleeping on the floor. They were passed out. So I got on the PA and I said, uh, Persa, bring the DFib to L4 door now because we know somebody's almost dead. <laughs> so we did a debrief of the cabin crew and I spoke to one of the crew and I said, what happened? They said, well, this person was sleeping on the floor. I said, how long ago did you notice it? They said, well, he's been sleeping there for about an hour, but he's really rude. I said, he's really rude. I said, what happened? Well, I asked him to hop up off the floor and he just ignored me. <laughs> And I said, because he's passed out. And she said, I didn't feel I could tell my leader because we already made a mistake and we got in trouble. And so even when somebody <laughs> could be dead, people are afraid to speak up. And this girl was hiding in the bathroom. So what I had to do was I would tell my cabin crew two things. I'd say, when you're flying with me, there's two rules. First of all, you've got to keep it safe. 
So whenever that uh, the, the button goes, the bell goes to put on the seatbelts, make sure you secure the cabin and yourself immediately. And second, keep it sexy. Because if you're smiling, if you're happy, if you've got your hair done, your makeup done, you'll get away with murder. And so that were the first two things. And then when I'd brief my cabin crew, I'd say to them, when we're working together, I'm going to walk around the aircraft and I'm going to catch you doing things right. And they'd be like, what, you're going to catch me doing things right? And I said, absolutely. Because I believe that 99 out of 100 things you're going to do on the aircraft, you're going to be doing it right. And I'm going to compliment you. So you've also got to set them up for a compliment. Because what happens is you've heard the shit sandwich before, <laughs> give them a compliment, give them uh, some negative feedback or criticism, and then compliment them again. So I tell them, I'm going to find you doing things right. And then if I see you doing something wrong or there's a shortfall, I'm going to bring it to your attention. And I'm going to assume that you're tired and you're fatigued or you're really busy and you've just forgotten about it. So I'll just remind you and you can correct it yourself. And out of hundreds of flights, I never had a problem. Never, ever had a problem with people because we set the scene for them. And then I had to live up to that expectation as well. Right, right. That's, that's a good word and great advice. Um, well, I'll tell you what, Daniel, it's about time for us to wrap up here. Uh, your information has been incredible. Tell people how they can best get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more. Come and play. I've got a website called Unleashed Masterclass where we teach you how to overcome fears, doubts, and limiting beliefs. Normally do that on a Thursday night. Come and join us. Wonderful event. Sounds great. <clears throat> well, again, thank you so much for sharing this. I, 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 I do want to shout out to folks who are listening here. If you're in a leadership role or trying to run a business, there, uh, the, the popular phrase that's out about emotional intelligence is really not just the buzzword of the day. There's really some substance in understanding how you can elevate your own ability to be emotionally intelligent in the workplace. And the experience I've had working with people who have become focused on that and change the tapes and change the stories that are going on and change their own ability to act and respond to situations rather than react to situations is such a powerful uh, shift in leadership ability. So I encourage you to, um, study more and read more but uh but as daniel reminds us that's not the end of it you gotta you gotta take action and make some things happen <laughs> we were in the the pawnbroking business for many years and people ask me today daniel what's emotional intelligence and i say it's just being street smart that's all it is yeah yeah very good well daniel again thank you so much for sitting in with us and uh really really been a pleasure Folks, I do want to remind you, if you're listening on your favorite streaming service, we do have a video of this over on YouTube, a channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, take a look, give us a like, and subscribe if you want to. Hit the bell. You'll get a reminder when other episodes release. We are pushing content out three times a week, so there's a lot of content coming at you. And we'd love your feedback and information. So for now, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, and have a great day. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.